Hey, what's going on, man? Thanks for checking in to my point of view. That's my POV, uh, where we deal with logic over emotions. And, uh, you know, today I wanted to just come and talk to y'all and discuss um, one, two things in particular, and then maybe a variety of different things as they uh, as they pop up in my mind. So, you know, nothing's written, nothing's scripted. Always uh, do these live and direct straight off the top of my head. Um, just based off of sharing my thoughts. All right. And uh, one of the things I wanted to discuss was uh, the Kyle Rittenhouse uh, case. And the fact that he was acquitted. And... the fact that he was found not guilty on all charges. And, uh, you know, a lot of people are in some forms, uh, well, in a lot of ways, uh, you know, disappointed by the verdict and uh, they feel there's some type of racial undertone to it and um, they like to use hypotheticals. If it was a black person, this wouldn't happen or that wouldn't happen. And uh, I just want to speak to the issue because people have to understand um, um, how we we must protect our our rights, our constitutional rights. Uh, one of those constitutional rights being the Second Amendment, which is the right for us to bear arms, right? And it gives us the right to uh, you know protect ourselves, protect our homes, protect our properties, protect our families, right? And in certain states where um, they're are big advocates uh, for the Second Amendment, right? And they allow you to uh, bear arms and uh, protect yourself. And um, they have stand your ground and self-defense laws in, in, in those particular states. Like, in these places, um, that is something that you want to uphold. That is something that you want to keep, you know, alive and well. You don't want nobody to take your right um, to protect yourself um, away from you. So... With the Kyle Rittenhouse situation, clearly, if you watch the video, if you watch the footage, if you've seen what was going on, um, it's it's undisputable that uh, it was self defense, you know, all the way. And it doesn't mean it doesn't matter that he's uh, a white guy. It doesn't matter at all, um, regardless what color uh, uh, the, the the guy was, whoever was in that uh, predicament at that time, and uh, things turned out the same way it did. They all should have been found not guilty and um, walked away from that case. And I'm not going to go into the hypotheticals because I'm not one that believed that if uh, Kyle Rittenhouse was a black man, that um, just because of the color of his skin, automatically he would have been found guilty and would have been thrown under the jail. Um, I don't believe that. Uh, nobody can uh, convince me to believe that or adapt that ideology. And I'm not here to, you know, force you or convince you to adapt my ideology. I'm just giving you my point of view, right? My POV. And that's that's what this show is about, you know. That's what it's about. And I you know, I take emotions <clears throat> I take emotions out of it when I'm um evaluating these situations, uh, to address it and speak on it and give my perspective on it. Um and I just use logic. Uh, I, I like to lean on logic, logic, um and common sense. I'm 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 huge, um advocates of and I subscribe to those uh to both both those ideologies right um so with that being said 
Um, we have to understand that uh, Calvin House loses that case. That is a huge uh, attack on the Second Amendment, right? That is a huge uh, smack for self-defense um, cases moving forward. And um, it's just, it just legally, morally, constitutionally, uh, whichever way you want to put it, um, the jurors uh, did their job and they made the right decision. They made the right decision. Um, uh, and, and, and further news, um, we have a new variant now, COVID. Uh, don't get me into um, pronunciation of the name and getting it uh, right or wrong. I've never said the name uh, before. I'm actually about to make my first attempt at saying the name. So um, if I say it wrong, then you know why. So I think it's called Omicron or yeah, Omicron or Omicron or something to that effect. And um, I've been telling people um, shit, over a year and a half ago that um, this thing was going to be around for a long time. And, you know, as they started talking about variants and, and all that, we said that you can obviously see that there was going to be um, several different variants of this virus that come out. And um, I just feel like there's, there's more coming down the line. Um, and, you know, we just got to stay safe, got to be healthy, you know. Um, can't live in fear. You know, you have to live your life uh, freely, smart, you know, and, and constant preparedness. Uh, but I think for the most part, as long as you stay um, grounded and in, 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 in true to what you believe in, what you stand in, who you are, right? Um, take accountability for your health, um, uh, for, for boosting your immune system by, um, you know, taking the right vitamins, eating the right fruits and vegetables, uh, the right supplements. If, if indeed you're taking some, you know, getting out in the sun, um, getting that natural vitamin D, right? Um, so these are the things that the body need. Um, your herbs and, and your teas and, you know, your, your uh, smoothies and your sea moss and, you know, your bladder, bladder rack and your burdock root, you know, make sure you have all these things and you're using your ginger, your ginger and you're steaming your water with your lemon and your lime and your grapefruit pills and you know just doing fast fasting and, and detoxing and clearing your body out you know you you have to do those things the body need that so um yeah just stay safe and stay healthy and that's about all for right now um my bro jay to the show what's up jay what's going on brother I'm good, I'm good, man. Just been uh, you know, grinding, working hard. That's all. That's good, that's good. Well, you know, it's always a pleasure to have you on. Um, you know, we always like kicking it and, and, and building with each other and just, you know, discussing different topics and and things of that nature. 
So um, the last conversation we had off off the air, uh, we were talking about, you know, the crime within inner city communities, you know, urban areas. And you had told me about this uh, statistic in regards to, uh, I think, the homicides of African-Americans uh, by African-Americans. And uh, I think it was in the 90s compared to now or something to that effect. So, uh, you know, without me you know, misquoting what you said, can you just, you know, go and give a little more insight about that? Sure, brother. Um, well, we were we were having a discussion mm -hmm. on comparison with po uh, police brutality, and compared to um, our brothers killing one another. And you know, we were talking about the statistics, the alarming statistics of fifty-seven percent of the homicides in America were us killing one another. And we only take up pretty much 12.7% of the population at this time. So, um, yeah, that's, it that's... was shocking. It was shocking to me, you know, when I was doing the research. That's a pretty and huge disparity. Yeah. And I don't want to say that, you know, because even with police brutality, I remember when we were younger, um, you know, the police would pull us over for no reason. So I'm not sitting here saying, you know, that um, police brutality is not happening. Um, but I will say that we are killing each other at an alarming rate at this moment. And we really need to really do the real research and understand this. And from last year, I've seen the statistics. It's roughly a thousand... Um, Thousand over a thousand people um, that was murdered in its whole totality, meaning our European counterparts, um, Spaniard, all the above. And brutality with the homicides of them killing us. Um, even though from the statistics it shows um, they're more likely to shoot a black person, uh, but the numbers aren't as high as we really uh, think there is. So, looking to, go ahead. Yeah. No, so I was gonna just gonna go actually elaborate on that or give like an example as far as the numbers. Um, not being as high as uh, we think they are or the media uh, portrayed them to be. And when I say the numbers, I'm talking about the numbers as far as, you know, um, uh, black people getting killed by police officers. Um, roughly with... Um the country, it was when I looked the last time, but this was like 2018, 2017, uh, what I found. And it showed it was roughly 6,600 um, homicides. And we took up a great portion of it. From They were showing the um, ages from, I think it was from the age of 17 to, I think, uh, 
30, if I'm not mistaken, mm -hmm. the numbers are alarming. So that's where the more likelihood of someone being murdered by a firearm would be from um, African-American, what they would say, uh, from about 17 to about 30, somewhere around there. You see the numbers are highest, around 57%. That's Shit. What the numbers, oh, that's what it shows. That's more than half. Huh? No, I said that's more than half. Yes. And with the with the homicides as well, yeah, it was in, about sixty six hundred in total. So um, I will say, from nineteen ninety to now, the overall numbers show that um, overall crime rates went down by about 30 to 35 percent okay from the 90s from the early 90s right so we have seen some type of drastic drop in crime overall in this whole totality but you know there's still any person that loses their life um you know it's very important for us to not be um immune to it in the sense of not having um, a heart of hearts so I'm not sitting here saying that um, one death is is less significant than the other. I'm just giving the facts. I would like to just give the facts, and then we can deal with it as as a neighborhood and become a community. Facts, facts. I agree with that. I agree with that with that process, and I think that's how we should do it. And and when you lay the flat the facts out there like that, and you look at it. You know, uh, uh, an intelligent person, a logical person, uh, a non-emotional person would understand that we have some work to do in our own home. Right. Um, instead of and I'm not saying that uh, we don't speak up for, you know, instances where a brother or sister is killed by a police officer. I'm not saying that we don't speak up for that. I'm just saying that we can't only speak up when those incidents occur. I mean, occur. We we need to we need to start addressing the bigger issue, which is fifty seven percent of the homicides are you know us killing each other, and um, that's 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 a problem, you know, because at the end of the day, we can complain about the police officer incidents all we want, like our, our death rate is gonna keep rising if we don't address the most important issue, which is what's going on at home. Yes. I totally agree. And that's where it starts. Um, let me say this as well. Uh, there was a, um, when we talk about fathers at home, um, there is a misnomer with uh, black fathers being in the home. Um, when they are doing the statistics and when they're doing the research, they're only going by single and married. So when you look at it, a lot of times right now they have a, a statistic showing roughly from 75 to 77 percent of African-Americans are born out of wedlock. So, um, but when you really look into it, you'll see that there are um, information has shown that a lot of fathers are actually stepping up. There was a, there was research done by the CDC in 2015 um, that shows that 
African-American fathers are more likely to spend time, uh, do homework, go out to the park and do things with their children more than their European counterparts. So there are statistics that show. So the 77 is only actually showing um, from a form of marriage. Right. So there are uh, what we would call co-parenting that is happening at a pretty high rate at this moment. So I want to address that as well, and we can deal with that as well because there is a there is a misnomer that a lot of politicians and a lot of race hustlers or, or you know these people who want to promote the idea that hold on hold on one second, Jay. Yeah, bro. Yeah. So, you know, there are a lot of fathers that are actually there. And we could also address the welfare states. I don't want to move. I, I think we're still in the same um, functionality. We're not really going anywhere. The subjects are pretty much um, interchangeable. So, but like with I agree. The welfare, the welfare state is a very important topic that we really have to address. Yeah, because the welfare state would, uh, you know, give people who don't understand it a better idea of, you know, wh how it affected and impacted, uh, you know, our communities. Uh, so, yeah, like like you mm -hmm. said, they all tie into each other. They're all quite synonymous. So, you know, feel free to to go from one talking point to the to the other, you know, if, if, if you need to get your point across. So you can definitely touch on the welfare state. Um, I appreciate that, Reverend. Um, Absolutely. And in 1963, um, under LBJ, which is Lyndon President Lyndon Johnson, um, he came up with the conclusion, and this moves towards an idea of socialism in a sense, um, the black community depending on the government to give them assistance for them to grow. And when you look at the numbers at this time in 63 to 65, you see that uh, there was an actual uh, increase in family, uh, children being born out of wedlock. And you'll see that the percentage was roughly 23 to 25%, which is a pretty alarming uh, number at the moment. Mm -hmm. So they came to the conclusion of bringing in a, a welfare state where it would help to assist. But what happened was fathers were being removed from the homes. Um, right. I'm not 100% sure because um, you'll see there was a lot of situations where the father would leave and come back uh, when the mother, when the social worker would come out to look into the home. I've heard this so many times. Right. And if the, if the social worker would see um, a man's shoe or anything in the home, they will basically reject uh, the person's application and restrict them away from welfare. Right. So um, you see this happening on, you know, it, it really, it really depreciated the value of the community. Cause at that time we were a community. Um, we had values 
And at this time, and then you'll see it was like a chain reaction because if you look at it, there was a domino effect at the same time. You see where the school systems were actually better at that moment compared to today. The public school was very good. Um, but now we see there was a depreciation of, of the idea of school, especially in what we would call black neighborhoods at this moment. So, so the welfare state played a major role in the destruction of the black family. Purposely. Purposely. Like. It seems to be purposely. But um, you'll find out with our government, they tend to think that they're doing us a favor and we don't understand how to how to function without them. So I'm not I don't know if it was just a idea. There's a chance of that to be true, but I'm not gonna go on the record to say that I know. So so I'm gonna go on the record and say that I know. Right? Okay. And the the reason why is because at the end of the day, you only can judge a person by especially that you have a, a relationship or, or, you know, experience with um, or, or spent time with, you only can judge them by how they show themselves to you, right? And the government has never, uh, in many instances, done what was best for the people. It doesn't seem like that's one of their character traits to go out their way to do what's best for the people, right? And if the ultimate goal has been to keep, you know, the poor subjugated, to keep them, you know, at the bottom of the totem pole, then to assume that the welfare state or the welfare, you know, system was put in place to actually help us is, well, to me, I, I would, I would, I would deem that to be kind of naive on my behalf to believe yeah. that the welfare state was put in place for the betterment of black people because it absolutely not because when you when you, if you just sit down and weigh the pros and cons of the welfare state there's more cons than pros and you know with these people being who they are nobody can't convince me that they don't go through every aspect and checks and balances of everything that they're about to put in place before they put it in place. They know the effects of what they're gonna do before they do it. So, you know, with that being said, I don't I don't see how the welfare state in any form or fashion um was was put in place to help us. Okay. Um yeah I can go for that. I can go for that. And then you gotta remember um this is the time of the civil rights. This is when the um, civil rights um, bill was passed as well. Right. So this was happening at the same time, simultaneously. So we see that um, this is the residue of the welfare state. And we see that even in the, the different parties, um, we see this socialist perspective of government taking care of the people. And I'm under the under the toolage of government should be smaller and correct man men and women should be able to figure things out for themselves. Absolutely. We're in a capitalistic society with a free market. And we have to understand in that free market, there is opportunity. We just have to figure it out. 
Absolutely. I got a question for you. Um, sure. So recently, this has been a current event. Uh, Charlemagne the God sat down and did an interview with Vice President uh, Kamala Harris. Uh, Kamala, Kamala, well, you know, I don't know how to actually pronounce her name, but okay. I'm going to say Kamala Harris, right? And I wanted to know, did first and foremost, before I even ask the question, did you see it? Um, I haven't seen it. Okay. But, uh, I guess you could elaborate on it, and I guess we can build from there, and, you know. Um. So I, I seen it. I'll speak on one part. She kept dodging questions. Um. Charlamagne asked her like, pretty much the same question, which is pretty obvious in three different ways, and she dodged it every, every goddamn time. Um, and kept trying to put it off on like a Republican thing and a bipartisan thing. The reason why I asked, did you see it is because, you know, they say body language and all of that is is very important. And you can read things through 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 seeing that. And if you've seen it, I wanted to know what did you think, you know, about her answering the questions, her body language, you know, the way she reacted to certain things. So basically, uh, this this guy, Joe, I think his name is Joe Manchin or something like that. I don't really know who the guy is, but obviously he must be a Democrat. That's uh, Charlemagne was saying was a holding back thing that was trying to get passed for black people, a bunch of different things. And he, he was asking her pretty much like, you know, if he's the problem and we know he's the problem, why why aren't you know, y'all informing us that he is the issue. Cause it seems like he said, it seems to be that, you know, everybody putting blame on you, but if Joe Manchin is really the problem, then why isn't that being told to us? Right. So that we know who's the problem, who's the issue and stuff like that. And then she, he asked her like, you know, who's, who's the president? Is it Joe Biden or Joe Manchin? So, but her answer to those questions, were the normal politician shit, you know, walking around the question, blame it on Republicans, do all this other stuff. And I just wanted to know, did you see it? And did you have any, any thoughts on, on the video? I didn't see it. Right. From what you're saying, it seems like tokenism in a sense of, um, her position. If she doesn't understand, Something, she's going to use red red herring um, fallacies and red herring fallacies is just changing the dynamics of the conversation mm -hmm. and you'll find out um because um i was just looking at her approval rates and it went down to 28 which is alarming so um we have to ask the question why is she in that position you know to start off with what was the position and you know, we see from Democrats, we see from Republicans, their strategy, you know, they strategize and their tactician is towards the idea of trying to bring in people to fit the bill and to make the people comfortable at the same time. Right, right. And so we see that happen a lot often. We see that a lot. So we have to ask the question, um, does she qualify? Not to say that she's not an intelligent person. Um, she was an attorney. She was a general. Um, she was a um, general, district attorney. Yeah, general attorney. Yeah. Yeah. DA, so, GA. 
and they said she was very hard on on crime and certain things. So I'm not saying that she's not an intellectual or someone who can actually, you know. Well, her approval rating, not you know, not to not to interrupt you, but her approval rating was down when she ran for the presidency. That's why she dropped yeah. out. She had the lowest rating at that point in time, right? Yeah. So it's obvious that, you know, the same guy who she was running against on the presidential campaign that she called the racist and mm -hmm. said that he stopped busing and he was, she was one of them little girls that used to get bussed to school. Like you, you did all of that. And then you turned around and accepted his nomination for vice president. Right. Yeah. So when you look at things like that, you got to see that there's something else behind the scenes and you see, and you notice that she's also, and she's predominantly Asian, right? Yes. So if she's if she's from Asia, and here you got Joe Biden getting in office, who we all know is cool with China. Um. It would it would be clear to me that two reasons. Yeah, you invested in invested in her so that you can make you know uh, uh, build that bridge with Asia, but on top of that. You also used her to garner black votes because she's quote unquote supposedly half black. Um yes. uh, on top of the fact that she's a female. So that's three, you know, pivotal reasons why she was elected as his nominee. Um yes. so we definitely know and 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 that would that would in in turn explain why the Asian hate bill crime was passed immediately. Yes. That's that's her people. You get what I'm saying? Gotta protect gotta protect her people. So yes. yeah. And when she's around black, she's gonna be black. And when she's around Chinese, she's gonna be she's gonna act um, Chinese. So it's really Facts. Chess. I caught something today that was pretty interesting. So I've been hearing in the news a lot about people walking away from her, like her cabinet, her team, stuff like that, right? So today, Charlemagne asking these questions. So obviously, it's these tough questions that she she's walking around, and you hear the producer on her side, wherever they was recording that, because she was on screen, um, saying, "Oh, this is the last question. You know, such and such. We gotta go. We gotta wrap it up. Whatever, whatever." But it happened to it happened to be uh, hundred to me. What I identified was the woman that was talking was a hundred percent African American. You get what I'm saying? Like, almost like she was born and raised on fucking Madison, bro. Like, damn near, that's how she sound. You hear me? And mm -hmm. that that led me to think she's surrounding herself with real African-American women so that she can study their, 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 their movements, the way they act, the way they talk, this, that, and the third every day so that when she do have this opportunity to jump on the screen... She can try to manipulate the viewers by portraying this, you know, blackity black image. That's a possibility. I'm not going to say um, she was actually with Montel Williams. That's where she first came from. The the singer. No. Um, you you talking about the, the the host? Okay. Yeah, she was with him. So she she has been around politics. And politicians and black politicians. So, you know, on one side, I agree with you. you you'll see it in, their, in people's mannerisms when they go too hard 
um, you know, from a, a culture perspective, if you've been from the hood, you know, it's just a part of you. So it wouldn't ha- you wouldn't have to act. You wouldn't have to, you know, it's just you. So you can see sometimes, you know, where she's trying to get up. I have listened to her a few times and, you know, I can hear her really trying to get her black point, you know, across. So I could agree to what you're saying as well. It's a possibility. Right. Well, I, you know, again, that's that's not a proven proven theory. It's just my theory because I know that she's going above and beyond to to uphold this this black image, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know anything about uh the I think it's the HR HR is it HR seventy or HR forty the bill about reparations? Um, I know some of it. Um, I know there are some people. Um, I think his name is Nahesi. Um, I forgot his last name if I'm not mistaken, but I know he was one of the people who were really pushing the reparation bill. Um. There are a, other, a few other people. I mean, I guess we can talk about that as well. Um, what is your perspective on it? And I guess we can you know, go from there. Yeah, well, I was I only asked about it because um, she, I think, I believe she was asked about rep- reparations. And she walked around that question as far as her support for it. But she did say something about, like, she supported the HR I think it's HR 40 or HR some, something like that, 270, something like that, the bill uh, in regards to reparation. But the bill is actually not for, like, passing reparations. The bill is for um, pretty much examining how would reparations be paid and what would need to be done in order to, you get what I'm saying, to pass. So it's basically like... Um, it's basically like a bill to 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 just do some statistical data and some you know analysts in regards to reparations how would that look how would that work so on and so forth so on one hand she 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 didn't say she's for reparation for black people but she walked around the question by saying she supported that bill which would then imply to most people that don't know what that bill is that she's in support of reparations, but the bill is not for reparations. The bill is just to look into, you know, reparations. You get what I'm saying? No, I definitely understand. And the idea of reparations is so complex. Very. Um, because of the multitude of parties that participated. Um, if you just deal strictly just with the chiefdoms in Africa and the part that they played is so significant for the Portuguese and the Spaniards at the time. Um, I don't know if we, if we want to go into that, but you know, I can go into it and, you know, really try to elaborate on the idea and how it's so hard to even start with it. So, 
uh, yeah, let's let's go into it. Give give a little context on that. This way we can talk about you know what what reparations look like for African Americans. Would it offset the economy? Should they do it? Should they not do it? Are you for it or are you against it? But, you know, just to put things in context for the listeners, give them a little background on the Portugal, because you, you'll also be enlightening me at the same time and how, you know, reparations or the or the, the the thought of reparations at that point, like what it looked like and, and, and so on and so forth. Sure. And we have to go back to the history and deal with it from there. And we would have to go back to the slave trade and really deal with it the beginning to the middle part to what we know to be now. And there was, you know, the 40 acres and a mule that was supposed to be under the Emancipation Proclamation. That didn't happen. Um, we go back to the Portuguese and identify when they arrived on the shores of, of Africa, West Africa. And roughly the earliest I seen was 1414. And when they came, they came because Portugal and the Portuguese rather were going through a desolate time. Um, they were looking for a trade partner. And most historians believe that they were actually looking for a emperor of Ethiopia by the name of Preston John. But come to find out Preston John was a mythological um, character. Mm -hmm. So when they enter in in 1414, um, they enter in just with fair trade. And they went up what is called the Ghana or the Guinea. Um, there's a lot of names. And it was considered as the Gold Coast in a sense because they knew that Africa was so rich in gold. Um, so the first time you will see um, any type of trade was under um, what they would call Prince the Navigator. And this was in roughly 1441. Okay. And his captain, his name was uh, Antonio, uh, I think, Gone calf or go calf or something of that nature, and they they traded ten West African slaves for um, ostrich eggs and some type of um, I forgot what was the other um, item that was sold, but it was something to do with gold. And this is the first time on record that I see this for my my extensive research and we know that portugal were the first ones to actually enter into africa to even be slaves or you know etc etc um what the listeners have to understand when we talk about africa we have to look at africa as if it was it's a landmass that has a plethora of countries just like if you go in asia you have the filipino Philippine, we have the, we have Chinese, we have Koreans. These are different people. Genetically, they are brothers and sisters, but from their ideology, they are totally different from their from their uh, nations. 
in their countries. So when we look at Africa, we will move from the idea of Pan-Africanism and we'll look at it from a position of them um, having separate tribes, separate countries. So it wasn't the idea of these are brothers under one umbrella in a sense. These were enemies at this time. Right. And upon them being enemies, tribal wars occurred. So if I came, so let's just take the Ebo and the Yoruba. Um, they've been warring against each other for a long period of time. If a Yoruba takes an Ebo in captivity, they had the option to enslave them, um, meaning use them for labor or trade them off to someone else. Okay. There is no records or recordings of a Yoruba trading out another Yoruba or Igbo trading out another Igbo out of their tribe. Unless um, I've seen maybe once or twice where there the occurrence where um, the person was probably so unruly where they were trying to get a, get rid of them because they couldn't control them inside of the system. But other than that, you just don't um, you don't see a Yoruba trading another Yoruba to uh, someone else. It was either he took from another tribe and it will be called war booty, take them and trade them somewhere else. So this was this is what was happening constantly. Constantly. Gotcha. So um so you'll see ninety percent of the slaves were being taken from another tribe and being traded to the European, which was a Portuguese. And then you'll see Spaniard comes in around um they had a foothold in they came early. They came around the uh, 1450, if I'm not mistaken. But they got a real foothold, and around 1488 is when they really got their foothold in Africa. So we got to look at it like this: Portugal were the ones that were the middlemen at this moment. They were the ones who was actually coming into Africa, and we have to get past the idea of them coming in and doing what they wanted to do. That's not true. They were getting destroyed on the regular. They did not walk into Africa and just go and take Africans. Right. Every time they came in, they were being destroyed. There are so many records of this happening from the Kenin people, which were found in central Africa, central Nigeria. You see, um, there's so many tribes, the um, Ashantis around the 15th century, um, yeah, 16th century. You see them on warring against um the Spaniards and, and British and all these other countries that tried to European countries that tried to come in and they were getting, you know, they were getting the work basically. So now we move on as you see the slave, we see the transatlantic um, slave trade, which mm -hmm. occurred in around 1517 to about 1521 when it really grew legs and it, it started to become um, something, um, worthwhile in the sense what we were called. But um, as you see the migration, you start to see all these different things occurring. We have to look, then we, we see through England. Most of the people from England, they came around what uh, the 17th century, 
and they migrated from the terrors of Henry the Seventh, Henry Eighth, um, who were like very, very vicious to the people. So that when they got a chance, they they moved out and they came into what we would call the Americas, and they migrated over. And this is what we call America today. And you'll see that it's so much. So we have we have the Africans, the chieftains that played a part in it. We have um, we have the Jewish. Um, what was it called? Um, it was called the um, Newport Jewish uh, slave ports, and they were the ones who were funding these type of um, slave trades in, in a sense as well. So they played a part in this as well. They were the ones who financed uh, Fernandez and Isabella for um, quote-unquote what we call uh, Christopher, Christopher Colombo or mm. Chris, Christopher Columbus. Mm -hmm. So he has a lot of um, AKs if you look into his name. Um, he has a journal where he talks about this as well. And he told them that he was going to India right right but he ended up going in the west indies yes the west indies he was supposed to be going to the east indies he ended up in the west indies and he lied to them and told them that he had indians mm -hmm. which would be literal indians in india so um we see there's a lot of people that play a part in that so um it's so chaotic to the point where it would be almost impossible to get a, a, a real figure. And then only 5% of Europeans were slave owners in America. This is a misnomer that's being missed. This is the monstrosity and this is the, the what, we, what we don't really understand. Look at all Europeans, look at them as slave or part of it. They were part of a system but not all of them were owners. So this is where the problem starts when you're talking about reparation. The numbers is astronomical. And I don't think that they will ever be able to do the research to find out exactly who played what part, who needs to owe, who owes this, who needs to bring this to the table. So that's the problem. That's the main problem. Gotcha. So, all right, now, how would that tie in, right? You know, for our listeners, bring them up to speed to how that tie in to current requests for reparations today for the African American slaves here in America. That were well descendants of African American slaves here in America. Okay, so let's go back to the Emancipation Proclamation in um, eighteen sixty five, sixty three to sixty five. And when they wrote in, we were supposed to get land because there was a lot of um, there was a lot of um, conversations about us moving back to Africa as well. And we were supposed to own a certain uh, piece. This was the conversation where they were supposed to we were supposed to get assistance from the government, which was the forty acres in the new. And unfortunately, that didn't occur. Um, as time progressed, you know, we went from 
what we would call Emancipation Proclamation to the Reconstruction Act, which was uh, from uh, 65 to 77. And then we went right back into Jim Crow. And as you just start to look and you see, it's very hard to really um, differentiate how and what would be the number because it's so astronomical of what they owe because of the labor and I don't know where could we start to be honest even as the descendants of the slaves yeah so I so I think so I feel like we deserve reparations. We need to get our reparations and everything. I also know that a reparation to us, especially depending on how much is owed per the calculation, which may be a few billion, you get what I'm saying? That would indeed offset the economy it's probably at maybe like a trillion or some change right 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 so that would that that would offset the economy right however i feel like there's ways that things like this can be accomplished so we always go back to the constitution and we look at things in the constitution well let's talk about things that we participate in daily or you know, frequently that isn't constitutional. One being income tax, right? Paying taxes, it's not a constitutional thing. This is something that was, uh, you know, put on us through the federal government. Now, what I'm suggesting is, shit, since you can't just print the money, and it may offset the economy, well, not may, let's just be real. It's going to offset the economy to pay out uh, reparations to us, especially since they waited so long and the calculations now is probably astronomical compared to what it would have been when they promised us our 40 acres in a mule. What I feel can be done is how about, you know, those unconstitutional taxes that you're having us pay? How about you set aside, you know, a personal uh, account in a trust or whatever it is specifically for reparations and every black American that pay taxes for the next year or two years goes all into this isolated fund account to where you distribute the reparation out of that. So basically instead of us paying taxes to you for a whole year, we will pay taxes to ourselves, Right. That means the government do not get any of our fucking money for two whole years. And you take all of the taxes that African-Americans will pay over the course of those two years, put it in one, you know, uh, trust account. And, you know, obviously, I, you know, I, I, I don't know, but that's going to be a, a, a pretty substantial amount of money. It's just a suggestion, you know, on my, I, I feel like it can be done. If they want it to be done, there's ways it can be done. The only um, blowback um, 
we have at this moment is who is the main blame? Who is the blame? You understand what I'm saying? Is it is it is the African chieftains? Is it um, the government? It's it got to be the government. So here's the thing: we can't ask for reparations from someone who's not to blame, right? So if we're not putting the blame on the American government, then the whole reparation thing go down the drain. We can't ask the American government to pay for something that we're not even blaming them for. You get what I'm saying? Yeah, no, no, no. I'm saying they, they are, they have a part in it, right? But yeah. There are other parties that have a part in this as well. The Jews have a part in it as well. Um, there's even Chinese um, emperors have a part in the slave trade. Right. Uh, so it's so like, so, so that's the problem. So, so do they have, do, do they have just for context? Do they have a part in the slave trade? Worldwide, yes. Now, my question is, do they have a part to play in specifically the slaves that were in the south of the United States of America? Was China involved in that? You get what I'm saying? Was was these other was the Jews involved in that specifically? Mm -hmm. Or and, and, and if they were, then shit, they damn near run America anyway. So we could just tie their asses in with the government. Yeah. Um, they do have a part because um, the port, uh, the porter that I was talking about was actually in Virginia, so um, they they would have they were the money changers and they were the ones who funded it. And then you got to remember New York as being New Amsterdam was the world stock exchange at the moment, which is still today. I mean, at, um, today since then. Right. So um, these parties, all these are participants in this slave trade. And the thing is, everybody would have to come out their pocket and pay, you know, uh, for their damages, which is restitution. Right. So we have a lot of parties that have to come to the, you know, to the drawing board and pay their part. No doubt about it. The government of um, American government has a big part because they are the ones who initiated the system. Because at first it wasn't what we see it to be as we look through slavery. Because in um, 1619, um, there were what we would call African Americans or us who actually uh, partake in the system where we were own, owning other black people. Right. Um, there's a brother by the name of Anthony Johnson. He went to court. He had, um, no, he actually had Europeans and Blacks enslaved at the moment because at 16, when 1619, when the quote-unquote, what they said, the 19 to 20 um, African slaves that came from through um, the Atlantic Ocean to um, Virginia, they um, were indigenous slaves. They were supposed to work off their their labor was supposed to be worked up after seven years. And after seven years, they started to pay taxes. They were able to um, live regular lives. They were able to own, um, they had wealth, all the above. Um, but we see, um, I think it was Massachusetts, if I'm not mistaken, was the first state to bring in what is called the missegregation laws. 
And under those laws, it forbid um, black people to actually own land and basically um, partake in the, um, uh, it wasn't America at that moment, but to partake in the system of the day. Because um, they, um, the British men, um, French, all the above, the people that were actually in America at the moment, they started to see black men, basically, they started to see their women actually being attracted to black men on an alarming rate. At that time, in uh, 46, it was only supposed to be about 300, 400 of us here. And we were actually sleeping with their women. And they didn't like that. So that's when we start to see when things started to change. And in 1664 is when it became a part of the 13 colonies, the miscegenation laws. Mm -hmm. And this is when you see the shift. This is when you see the black uh, the uh, slave codes come in and we start to see a shift and how things work. But at that moment, we were owning land. We were, we were well off at that moment. And we was able to do whatever we wanted to do. We was a part of the citizens. And this is where you see the word white coming. Uh, prior to 1690, you don't see a person call himself white. So the idea, this is why you'll hear me say European and saying white, because I know it's part of a caste system. It's a taxonomy or, or, or class, uh, a certain uh, form of class. So the, this is when you start to see the people, like I was saying, British, French, people of England, because this is in the documents, that's all you see. You don't see at that period in time, you don't see someone call himself white until after 1690. This is when you start to see people call themselves white. There's a book by, the, uh, by um, a man called Theodore Allen, The Invention of the White Race, and it was written in 1993. He has two volumes of it, and it's a good read because it gives you an idea of how um, these classes came in and why they came in. Gotcha. So after probably, so after post sixteen ninety is where you said the class, the class system kicked in, huh? Yes, that's when you hear the word white come in, and white was it, it was it was brought in for a reason. It was to put people um to put the low or put so African yeah. So was that when the white and the black term came in because we know black was a new a fairly new terminology just as well we weren't called black you know it's called negroes or colored people the person who really took it to a whole nother level in 65 1965 on cbs um when he was talking was um stokely carmichael was the one who said basically i'm just paraphrasing you they want to have white power we give them black power. And he started saying black power, black power. So he was the first. And remember, Stokely Carmichael was a part of um, the organization with um, Martin Luther King. But Stokely Carmichael didn't have the same ideology. He didn't believe in nonviolence. So um, gotcha. you really, you, that's when you started to hear black power as a as a remedy for um, white power in a sense. And you said that was uh, 1695? 
1965. 19, oh, yeah, I'm tripping. I switched all the numbers up. <laughs> yeah, 1965 is when he really came up with that. He coined that idea of black power. So, so, so after now, 19... He wasn't calling himself black, but it was never, it wasn't why it was, you know, either colored or, or Negro, um, Negro, or, you know, those were the terms of the day. Gotcha. But you, you really heard someone saying, but until... He went, you know, he went in on that, that idea. Gotcha. So let me ask you. Right. So let me ask you this, you know, this last question that you can elaborate on, you know, uh, until you get, until you get your answer across. Uh, how do you feel about the current state that our people are in? Are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future of our people as far as, uh, you know, coming like like uh, closing this wealth gap and, you know, just coming into a place of prominence? How what, what what's your take on that? And what do you think? That's an excellent question. Um. We have to really define culture. Um, we really have to understand that the culture that we have today is totally backwards. Mm-hmm. We have to under, we have to define what is success to us. We have to define um, what is wealth building, how to build wealth. Being 12.7% of the population in America, we should at least own at least close to 13% of America's uh, wealth. Um, the, mis- the misconception of wealth cannot be determined by job distribution, right? Right. It has to be more or less based upon ownership. Um, do that mean that every black person would be able to be an owner or create a business? No. Because only 25% of the nation are entrepreneurs or owners. And out of that 25%, only 3 to 5% are owners outside of the umbrella of self-employed. Self-employed is someone who works for themselves. Right. They're paying almost as equivalent to an employee in taxes and all the above. So um, we really have to understand how to create wealth, build wealth, and not be just, and it's not just determined by getting a job. Because nine times out of ten, a job will make you rich. Facts. It takes a long period. Now, let me say this. There are ways of becoming rich from a job, but it'll take you 40 to 50 years to get there. Right. And then the the problem is from the baby boomers, they were the ones which would be from roughly about maybe around, I think the numbers would be from 40 on to about 60 something, if I'm not mistaken. Um, Their jobs were secure. They went through trade school. They went through high school, got through trade school. And they had a job for 30, 40 years. 
Today we understand that's out. Um, there is no security in jobs like it used to be. Right. So we have to understand how the fall one, how did it come into place in 74, 77 under the Nixon administration, why it was brought into existence, um, why pensions aren't prevalent like they used to be, because they had it uh, way better. They had security. Um, the interest rates at that moment in the 80s was up to 18%, which is, is alarming, it's is amazing. To, to today, is under 1% because of the Federal Reserve. Um, so we have to understand, we have to change the code of ethics that we have today. Um, how we look, we look from a street perspective, and it should be vice versa. Two minute warning. It's it's a um it's a lot of work, and we are as African um from being from the continent of Africa through the studies of axiology, the value systems. Black people are family oriented, right? So, with that being said, we have to move back to those ideas if those ideas helped us. So we have to do a, a statistical study on prior to the welfare state and see are we were we better off inside of the uh, Jim Crow than we are today. Did we build more wealth? Did we produce more jobs? Did we have a family worthwhile where the father was the head of the home? Agreed, agreed, agreed. I got things that we have to really look at it. And no disrespect to women today, but we just have to look at it for what it is. When they've been in leadership roles, um, from raising a family without the father being there, have we moved up to where we needed to be, or have we regressed? I like that, and we're gonna stop right there. We're gonna stop right there because literally, we're gonna start. The next, you know, segment that we, we discuss and talk, we're going to start from right there. I like that point you made, so I want to leave it right there. I just want you to answer this question, uh, either say one word or the other. So in regards to us and our people moving forward, optimist or, or pessimist? I don't know if it's possible to be in the middle. Um, Come on, I just I need something. I need, I need something quick. I need something quick. Five seconds. I need something quick. Optimistic. I, I will say I could be optimistic. Thank you. 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 Thank you.